This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. We have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity in the privacy of your soul in terms of your own relationship with God to confess any sins to Him. First John 1 John 1.9 teaches that if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anytime we sin as believers, we are immediately uh, out of fellowship with the Lord. We lose the filling of the Spirit, and we are no longer in a position to grow spiritually. So God has given us a grace provision with confession of sin, whereby we can instantly uh, recover from sin and be restored to fellowship. When we are in fellowship, it is under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we learn the Word of God and that the Holy Spirit is able to utilize it for our spiritual growth. So uh, we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word. You have told us that it is in your light that we see light, that it is your truth that defines all other truth. And only as we learn to think in terms of your word, only as we learn to look at life and to evaluate life in terms of your revelation, are we able to honestly and accurately understand things as they are. It is you that have defined and determined reality. Only as we adjust ourselves to your word are we properly, properly oriented to reality. Father, we pray at this time for our nation, for our national leaders, for our president, for our military leaders, for those who are involved in the crucial decision making in relationship to Iraq, for others who are involved in the Uh, more covert war against terrorism, those involved in national security, whether they are border guards, custom agents, or whomever, we pray that you would give them wisdom and skill, insight into their job, that they may be able to honestly assess the information and facts that come before them, that because of your hand, this nation will continue to be protected, this nation will continue to be kept secure. 
Father, we pray for wisdom for our military leaders as we uh, contemplate this decision to go into Iraq. We pray that if we do that, that you would give them uh, wisdom that they might have uh, courage and bravery and skill at conducting their operations. Father, we pray for us as we continue our study of your word that we would continue to respond positively to the challenge of your word, recognizing that it is only when we are rightly related to you and walking by means of the Spirit that we can develop our capacity for life, have real happiness, and begin to understand the value and significance of this eternal life that you have given us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we begin our study of Second John, verse 8. Second John, verse 8. Now, Second John is not a an epistle that has a lot to it. It's only 13 verses. And yet, when we look at these verses, John has packed them with a tremendous amount of content. And the core of the epistle begins in verse 4 and goes down through verse 11. We have spent some time on this in verses 4 through 6. The emphasis is on walking by means of love. That is the commandment that Jesus gave the disciples that was a new commandment that would specifically characterize the walk of the disciple in the church age. Now, a disciple is not the same as a believer. A believer is anyone who has put their faith alone in Christ alone. Anyone who recognizes that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God who became man and went to the cross and died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, uh, God does 40 things for the believer, including identifying them with Christ, placing them in Christ, and giving them a vast array of spiritual assets which are the basis for living the spiritual life. Everything you need for the spiritual life, everything we need to handle and face, surmount any challenge, problem, test in life, is given to us at the instant of salvation. But it is only through your study of the Word of God that you advance in your spiritual life, that you grow to spiritual maturity and learn what these spiritual assets are so that you can then utilize them as you face the challenges, tests, and temptations of life and grow through those situations by applying doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is only as you learn them through the study of of the Word that you're able to grow. So the focus of the believer is to make learning doctrine, learning Scripture, studying Scripture, the highest priority in life. And until you reach that point, you will never get out of spiritual infancy. It's just impossible. In the same way, by analogy, until you begin to learn as as an individual growing up that you have to start postponing gratification, that you can't live today in light of today's Uh, desires and today's wants, that you have to begin to live in light of the impact of your decisions next year, the next year, the next decade, or three decades down the road. It is only when you realize that, that the decisions you make today begin to impact things later on in life that you begin to appreciate uh, or begin to approach maturity. And it is only in the realm of maturity that as believers we begin to really see 
the impact and value of all that God has given us and provided for us. And so as we grow and as we mature, and as God the Holy Spirit produces the character of Christ in us, and as we respond through Christian service, through uh, the operation of our ambassadorship and our priesthood, uh, through the operation of witnessing to believers, giving in support of the local church, teaching one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another, all of those uh, facets of the spiritual life, it is only as we begin to grow and, and the Holy Spirit produces these things that there is a basis for reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Last time we began to study the judgment seat of Christ, which is the background for understanding verse 8. In verses 4 through 6, I say we have this commandment to walk by means of love. That love is a love that was demonstrated by Jesus Christ. He said that we were to love one another as I have loved you. Now, one of the things that I am continuously thinking through and continuously trying to uh, develop, we may even have to go back to verse 7 and redo it, is the connection between verse 7 and verse 6. Verse 6, we're told, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. That is, you should walk by means of it. It's an instrumental dative there. We should walk by means of love because many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not admit Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Now, what is the connection there? Now, that is a very interesting connection. John is giving a causal statement based on the original Greek. It's not a for there, as I've said before. It's a because. Why should we walk by means of love because of deceivers? What's that connection all about? At the very least, that connection is about the fact that the love that we are to walk in is a love manifested by the God-man. It is a love that manifests the love of God as exemplified in John 3.16 and, and Romans 5.8. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love that we're to walk in is God's love, but it's exemplified through the work of Christ on the cross. If Jesus is not truly human, then you don't have this display of human ability to love the way God loves. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. This was a doctrine that was being disputed by the late first century and became a major plank in what came to be known as Gnosticism in the second century. In the first century, it was simply known as docetism, and it was the idea that, uh, that that Jesus really wasn't a true human. He just appeared that way. It was sort of a phantom, just a manifestation, almost a uh, hallucination type of thing. It was He wasn't real flesh and blood. But the point of Scripture is it is in his humanity that Jesus demonstrates that as a man, as a human being, we can have this same kind of love that God demonstrated on the cross. So this is the connection that what when these deceivers were coming along, and I want to spend a whole uh, hour or two dealing with the mechanics of deception and how we succumb to deception 
uh, in a couple of weeks, but first we have to wrap up the judgment seat. Uh, these deceivers were becoming very popular. It is This is one reason the Scripture calls most believers sheep. That's not a complimentary term. It is because unless you reach a level of spiritual maturity where you really have an understanding of the Scriptures and an understanding of theology, it's real easy to become deceived by somebody who comes along and sounds good, sounds like they know what they're talking about. And so this is what happened in the early church. They had these various intellectual systems that were quite appealing to people. And so after a while, uh, these believers, after their immediate uh, introduction to Christianity had become uh, rather mundane, they became stimulated by these intellectual deceptions such as docetism, and they began to leave the church, leave their Christian life. As a result, there was a failure uh, in their Christian life, and this is why John warns them in verse 8 to look to yourselves. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things that we worked for. And the emphasis there is clearly on the fact that we work for certain things in the spiritual life, not for salvation. This is in terms of rewards, and rewards are at the judgment seat of Christ. So to understand verse 8, we have to understand the background of the judgment seat of Christ in distinction from the great white throne judgment. And that is why last time I went through the six basic judgments in history, and the two most important ones to focus on are the ones that occur in heaven for Christians, which is referred to by the Greek word, the bema, which, occur, which is also the judgment seat of Christ, which occurs after the rapture. Jesus Christ came to the earth in the incarnation, died on the cross in 33 A.D. Fifty days later, on the day of Pentecost, you have inaugurated the church age. We are currently living in the church age. We do not know exactly when it will end, but what ends it is the coming of Jesus Christ in the air for the church. Those who are dead, Scripture says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. And we are taken to heaven, at which time there is the judgment seat of Christ. On the earth there will be a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. It doesn't start with the rapture. Some people get that idea. It actually starts sometime after the rapture with an event described in Daniel chapter 9 as the signing of a covenant between the coming Antichrist and uh, the state of Israel. That begins a seven-year period known as the Tribulation. That ends with the second coming of Christ which time he there will be another, there's a judgment here of the unbelievers who survive the tribulation. Then he is, Jesus Christ establishes kingdom called the millennial kingdom from the Latin word mille being, meaning 1,000. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, there's another revolt at which time Satan is put down and finally defeated and God establishes the final great white throne judgment for all unbelievers 
And it's at this time that unbelievers are assigned to their eternal destiny in the lake of fire. So don't confuse these two judgments. This is the judgment seat of Christ, which is for believers only, and it has to do with rewards, not punishment. Then there is the great white throne judgment, which is for unbelievers who are assigned to the lake of fire. Believers have their destiny in heaven secure, so the issue at the Bema seat is not salvation. This is where we ended last time. We went, we began the doctrine of what I'm calling evaluation judgment. This relates to the judgment seat of Christ and the back, and is the background for verse 8. First of all, judgment in scripture, scripture, the English word judgment translates two distinct Greek words. We just have this one word in English, judgment, and it translates two Greek words. The first Greek word is krino, K-R-I-N-O, and the second word is the verb dokimazo, which I referred to in the first hour, D-O-K-I-M-A-Z-O. Now, krino, krino has the primary meaning of to separate, to select, to choose, it came to mean to judge, to pronounce judgment, and even in some forms of the word, such as katakrino, it means judgment, so it ha- or it means condemnation. So it can mean condemnation, and it has the basic idea of to judge, pronounce judgment, and it is a, a negative word. This has a negative connotation to judge negatively. It can have a positive connotation, but primarily it has the idea of, of uh, making a negative judgment. It is a word that is used often in association with adjudication in a, in a legal courtroom and determining guilt and pronouncing condemnation or judgment. Dokimazo, on the other hand, is a p- more positive word and has the connotation of evaluation. And the idea is evaluation for approval or evaluation for reward. It's a positive concept. It is not a negative. It is the idea of evaluating someone in order to determine what they have done uh, positively that they can be rewarded, rewarded for. And this is the word that is used in 1 Corinthians 3. 13, which is in the central passage on the judgment seat of Christ, that this is the word that is used in the phrase to test the quality of each man's work. And this is what will take place at the judgment seat of Christ. So let's turn just briefly over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've spent some time here. It's a familiar passage to many of you, but we'll just read through it to remind ourselves of the high points. 
the picture here, the image that Paul is using, the metaphor that he is using is that of a house that what you do in life, the aggregate of the decisions you and I make in life constructs an edifice. It builds a house, as it were, and it is that building, that construction that is the product of our life from the time we're saved until the time we go to be with the Lord. It is that production that is evaluated what goes into that production or a number of things. We make some decisions under the filling of the Holy Spirit and application of doctrine that accrue to uh, spiritual growth and are what we classify as divine good. It is the production of God, the Holy Spirit, in our life through the application of the Word of God. Other decisions we make, we're out of fellowship, we're operating on the sin nature. They're moral decisions, they're good decisions, but they still have as their source the sin nature. This is a new concept for many people, that the sin nature also produces uh, uh, produces just morality, but morality doesn't necessarily have spiritual value. And so we classify this as human good. Now, in our state today, you and I cannot always tell what, we're, what has gone on in our life in terms of divine good or human good. We know that there are clearly times when we're in fellowship and it's been the production of the Holy Spirit and it's divine good. Other times we know that we're out of fellowship and it hasn't been divine good, it's just been human good. But there are times we don't know. So we won't have any way of evaluating ourselves at all. You can't evaluate yourself. You can't, don't get caught up in some sort of uh, obsessive uh, self-examination uh, trying to figure out how well you're doing. All you can do is keep short accounts of sin, confess your sin to whenever you, you are, are reminded that there is sin in the life, staying in fellowship as much as possible, and then at the uh, judgment seat of Christ, we, it will all be made evident. And this is the image that... In verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation is Jesus Christ. You can't have a spiritual life without trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. There is a lot of popular discussion today about people's spiritual life. Every now and then you'll turn on one of those uh, uh, deep programs on television like Entertainment Tonight or one of those, and you'll see some Hollywood celebrity talk about the fact that, well, they're just going to step back for a while and pay attention to their spiritual side. And, you know, that means they're going to go to Betty Ford and dry out for a while. Or they're going to uh, go, go to some psychological retreat and go on some sort of emotional high. Or they're just going to step back from work for a while and do whatever it is they enjoy doing for a hobby so they can rest and relax. But spirituality can run the gamut today in our society from some sort of New Age mystical, contemplate your navel sort of spirituality to some sort of monastic, uh, monastic routine that has some sort of rigorous practice associated with it. But the Bible defines spirituality as being in right relationship to God the Holy Spirit, which can only be for people who are uh, regenerate believers who have put their faith alone in Christ alone. So we're told in verse 12, If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. So there are six different images used for the kinds of building materials you have in life. 
This is what you build your house with gold, silver, and precious stones relates to that which has eternal value, the production of God the Holy Spirit, that which is produced when you are walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, filled with the Spirit. Wood, hay, and straw, on the other side, has a temporary value and temporary significance, and that is the production of the sin nature in terms of simple morality, in terms of uh, pseudo-spirituality, in terms of just basic good works, which anybody can produce, believer or unbeliever. So Paul says, if anyone builds on this foundation, so you construct a house and you can't tell from your vantage point what's gold and what's straw. And Paul says then in verse 13, each one's work will become clear. So you see what you are producing in life, what is being produced in life is called work. Now, this is not a negative word. Sometimes we talk talk about the fact that spirituality is by grace and not by works, and by that we mean it's not by something meritorious. You're not doing something that that is gaining God's favor and then he's blessing you for it. That never That's not the process of the spiritual life. It's always walking by the Spirit, which is dependency upon God, and he is the one that produces growth in our life. But the work here is defined in terms of that spiritual life production. Each one's work, that is the decisions that you make in life under the filling of the Holy Spirit, will become clear, will become manifest. For the day will declare it. The day here refers to the judgment seat of Christ. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. Now, this is not the fire of hellfire. This is simply the imagery used here that it is as if you've gone out, you've built this house with these different materials, and you don't know what's gold, silver, precious stones. You don't know what's destructible by fire. So the whole edifice is is incinerated, and what is left is what has real value. So the point of the demonstration is not to reveal this wood, hay, and straw, In other words, not to reveal the sin in your life, not to reveal the failures, not to reveal all the missed opportunities, but to reveal that which was produced by God the Holy Spirit in your life. So it is this edifice of our life is going to be incinerated, and this is where we have the phrase, and the fire will test, dokimadza, will evaluate each one's work of what sort it is. Verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. So if everything's burned up and there's nothing there, you will lose some things. You will not lose salvation. But he himself will be saved is the next clause. You'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now let's go back to... uh, Second John, verse 8. This is where John says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we worked for. That is, these rewards, the gold, silver, precious stones for which we're rewarded, that we may receive a full reward. Now, one thing I should note before we get into detailed exegesis here 
So it begins with a warning, blepete in the Greek, which is a present active imperative, meaning that this should be a standard operating procedure. You need to constantly be vigilant. This is part of that priority we talked about in the first hour. We need to be constantly vigilant about our spiritual life. That, this is the purpose for the vigilance, that we do not lose those things we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. Now, does anybody notice anything? Those of you who are looking at your Bibles, if you're using an NIV or New American Standard or something else, you have looked to yourselves that you do not lose the things that we worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. You have a second person plural there uh, in the better manuscripts, that is the majority text, the majority of manuscripts, there is a first-person plural. Once again, we get back to that naughty little problem of textual criticism. Where It's not that we have, as Dr. Ryrie used to say, it's not that we're missing part of Scripture. It's that we have 102%, not 98%. You know, we had some mistakes crept in over the years. And there's some a family of older manuscripts that have a first, or excuse me, have a second-person plural there instead of a, first person plural. The majority, vast majority of manuscripts have a first person plural. I think that's a superior reading than the that which is in the the older manuscripts. And the point that John is making is that he is their pastor. As their pastor, it is a team operation. What the pastor is teaching the congregation and what the congregation is learning and applying is a joint operation that they're all working together to produce from the point of evangelism when the apostle first came to this area and explained the gospel and there were those who responded and put their faith alone in Christ alone to the ongoing work of discipleship. Now, discipleship simply means to teach people to be students of the Word of God, to learn the Word of God, and to apply it in their lives. And this takes diligence, it takes uh, prioritization, it takes an ongoing effort of being in Bible class, studying the Word, applying it, and that is considered to be work. Now, that is, in all the manuscripts, that is a third, I mean, excuse me, that is a first-person plural and I think that all these verbs should be first-person plurals So, uh, on the basis of the fact that the middle one is as well. So we do not lose the things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, notice he doesn't say that we may simply receive a reward, but that we may receive a full reward. They may still have some of life which is rewardable, some of their spiritual life which is rewardable, but they may lose some of the rewards if they become distracted by this ascetic, false view of Jesus Christ, then they would no longer be operating on the model of Jesus Christ and his true humanity in terms of applying the problem-solving devices. Now, all of that is really background to understanding these two words, the difference between crino and dokimazo and the judgment seat of Christ. Point number two is the evaluation. The evaluation at the, at the judgment seat is determined on the basis of how well and how much the believer uses the ten stress busters, which are the spiritual skills necessary to advance to spiritual maturity. 
Now let me review those ten stress busters. I'm not going to go back through the whole doctrine. That's covered extensively in the study on James, which is available on tape. But you have the basic stress busters which relate to your spiritual childhood. You have to master these to get out of childhood. The first is confession of sin. We confess our sins and then we are filled with the Holy Spirit so we can walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. If you don't learn to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, you can't get anywhere in the spiritual life. That is the basic mechanic. We walk by means of the Spirit. And first thing we begin to master is the faith rest drill. Faith rest drill means we respond to the challenges of life by trusting and relax, trusting in God and relaxing in His promises and provisions. We go from the faith rest drill to doctrinal, excuse me, to grace orientation. Grace orientation, we learn that everything we have in life is due to the grace of God. It's not based on who we are or what we've done. It's based on who He is and what Christ did on the cross. As we learn grace, we begin to quit trying to impress God and impress others, and we just try to do our job as unto the Lord. Then we have doctrinal orientation when we begin to learn the Word of God and orient our thinking to the Word of God. We master these, we get out of spiritual childhood, and we go through spiritual adolescence, and we begin to learn to make decisions in light of eternity. We realize that every decision we make today determines who and what will be for eternity. We begin to uh, get past the fact that all of these details in life that, that surround us from from activities for our children, our own activities and hobbies, work, everything else, that ultimately that is uh, not what matters. What matters is what is produced in our spiritual life so that we have something that counts for eternity and we begin to live each day in light of eternity. Then we get into what I call the love triplex where we be- develop our personal love for God which is the motivation then for the impersonal love for all mankind and impersonal love for all believers. And then occupation with Christ. These develop together. They are distinct, but they develop together. And then as a result of all of these things, we'll close the gap here, we have uh, perfect happiness plus H. When we are in fellowship, we are walking inside. This forms like a fortress, a a boundary around us, and every time any situation in life comes up, we exercise our positive volition, and we choose to handle the problem, the situation, whatever it is, simply by applying one of these principles or more of these principles to handle that problem. As long as we handle those problems, in that matter, we stay in fellowship and that is also described in Scripture as abiding in Christ. So as long as we're staying in fellowship, we're abiding in Christ, we're operating on these problem-solving devices. The more time we spend inside this soul fortress, this fortification that's erected by these problem-solving devices that protect us from uh, the onslaught of of, uh, adversity, which uh, when we fail, we Yield to sin produces stress in the soul. We've learned the principle that uh, adversity is inevitable 
and stress is optional. And whenever you respond to the uh, difficulties of life tests or temptations uh, from the sin nature, from your own effort, then you create stress in the soul. But as long as you operate on the stress busters, there will be no stress. You can relax and have maximum happiness in whatever circumstances you find yourself in. As we stay inside this circle, as we use these skills, and they are skills, you develop them over time. It takes practice. It takes concentration. It takes uh, uh, making this a priority in your life. As you stay inside that, that soul fortress, you grow and you mature. As you mature, God is going to distribute to you the blessings he's already set aside for you. This is the difference between legalism and grace. Legalism says, well, if I go to church or if I go to prayer meeting or if I give money to the church, then God's going to bless me. God doesn't bless you because you go to church. God doesn't bless you because you give to the church. God doesn't bless you because you do anything. God determined in eternity past what those blessings were that he was going to give you in time and what he's going to give you in eternity. But if you don't grow up enough to handle those blessings, he's not going to give them to you. It's just like if you were going to give, you were wealthy enough to go out and buy a nice uh, Lamborghini or Ferrari. You would not give the keys to that vehicle to your six-year-old son. You might put the title deed in his name. But you're not going to give it to him. Maybe you're very wealthy and you have a tremendous amount of money, so you have a trust fund set up because you know that you're not going to give your wealth to a 6-year-old or 11-year-old or 16-year-old because they don't have the maturity to handle it. And if you dumped $20 million on a 15-year-old, you're going to ruin that 15-year-old. And so you set it aside and only set up conditions that if they reach maturity and they exhibit a certain amount of maturity, then that wealth will be distributed. But if they don't reach maturity, the wealth isn't distributed. It's still theirs potentially. They don't earn it. It's given to them, but they have to achieve the maturity and the capacity to handle it. That's why these blessings are contingent. There are contingency blessings for time and contingency blessings for eternity, and rewards are part of our contingency blessings for eternity. This is what we covered in the first hour under the doctrine of crowns. These are some of those contingency blessings for eternity. So if we do not grow, and if we do not develop the capacity to handle those blessings, then they aren't distributed. Those rewards, those crowns will not be distributed and they will be on display as undistributed rewards throughout the millennial kingdom. And after the great white throne judgment, they will then uh, be destroyed in the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8 describes loser believers, that is those who are, who, who are carnal, who never uh, live a spiritual life. And it says their part is in the, the uh, lake of fire. Now, the word part there doesn't mean that they are in the lake of fire. That word part is the Greek word meros, which means a share or an inheritance, so that the uh, inheritance of these carnal, Corinth, uh, these carnal Christians is going to be destroyed in the lake of fire uh, at the same time as the great white throne judgment. Now, point number three, the present church age is going to terminate. The present church age, as I said earlier, terminates with the 
rapture of the church. So this is the time frame we have. Now, you don't know when the rapture is going to occur any more than you know when you're going to die. So we need to constantly live in terms of this rapture event or in terms of our physical death. It could occur tonight. It could occur tomorrow. So the priority of each day needs to be, am I living today in light of eternity? Am I making decisions today in light of eternity and in light of the fact that I am going to appear at the Bema Seat and it's not that I'm going to show up and have to have all my sins exposed. Our sins were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. But am I going to have anything to show in terms of spiritual value from my time here on earth? So point number three emphasizes the fact that the present church age terminates with the pre-trib rapture. Fourth point, immediately following the rapture, we have the... Uh, we have the evaluation judgment. This is analogous to the Bema seat that occurred after the Olympics. In the first hour in 1 Corinthians, we have been studying 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 to 27, where Paul uses the analogy of the Isthmian Games. And whether it was the Isthmian Games, the Pythian Games, the Olympian Games, or the Numian Games, uh, at the end, there was a reward ceremony, just like we have in our modern Olympics. We usually give out the awards right after the event, but then they, at that time they waited till the whole uh, contest was over and all the contestants uh, stood in front of the judge. And the judge sat on the bema seat. This is the same word that's used of the chair that the judge or local magistrate or ruler would sit in uh, where you would go to civil court or, or criminal court and the judge would adjudicate the decisions. So they would stand before this bema seat and the awards for the and the wreaths for the victors would be passed out and distributed to the athletes. So this is what takes place after the pre-trib rapture. Fifth point, this evaluation is directly related to the believer's utilization of spiritual assets. How well you learn about the filling of the Holy Spirit, how well you learn about confession of sin, how well you learn about the promises of God so you can claim them in the faith rest drill. This is why I repeat before every class a series of verses is because I know that most of you are not disciplined enough to go home and put yourself through some sort of rigorous Bible memory program so that you can learn Scripture. You should be doing that. But I hope that by repeating different series of verses before class every time, that you will hear that enough to where at least those promises are drilled into you so that when you get into some crisis, all of a sudden you're going to start hearing my voice repeat one of those promises, and you will then have something that you can claim in terms of the faith rest drill. We have all of these assets that God has given us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says he has blessed us with all the heavenly blessings. These are ours. We don't earn or deserve them. We don't get them because we pray or give or go to church or get discipled or go through some other uh, spiritual, so-called spiritual activity after salvation. They're ours from the instant of salvation. Second Peter 1 3 says, that His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that word, eusebeia, translated godliness, means the spiritual life. He hasn't given to us some things, most things, partial things. He's given to us all things related to life and godliness through 
the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So we have to grow by knowledge. Second Peter, I mean, Second Peter ends with the admonition that we are to grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So point six, then, it is our performance, not salvation, that is the issue at the judgment seat of Christ. It is our performance, not salvation, which is the issue at the judgment seat of Christ. The successful believer, the believer who has learned these spiritual skills, who has mastered these spiritual skills, who is constantly coming to class, listening to tapes, being reminded of doctrine, learning doctrine, letting his the human viewpoint in his soul be replaced by divine viewpoint, learning to think about life as God thinks about life, evaluate life as God evaluates life. That believer is the one who advances and who will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul says in verse 8, look, I mean John says in verse 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things, um, those things we worked for. And the verb there for lose is, is apalumi. Apalumi is used three different ways in the New Testament. This is an important word. Its basic meaning is to destroy. Now, it's used in an everyday context for something that's destroyed or broken or rendered useless. It is used frequently in salvation verses in reference to those who are lost eternally, those who will spend eternity in the lake of fire, those who are not saved. It's the word that's used in John 3.16 for those who perish. It is used for uh, as a title for uh, Judas Iscariot, for one who is a son of destruction, one who is lost, one who is not saved. But here, as in 1 Corinthians 8.11, it is used for the destruction of, of the spiritual life. In 1 Corinthians 8.11, it is used of the spiritual life of a weaker brother that is destroyed. So it has simply the idea that that um, uh, these rewards are destroyed. It's not talking about an individual. It, it says that we do not lose, the th- lose those things. So the object of the verb is the things we worked for. The object isn't people, it is things, and these things are lost. These things are permanently lost because we have failed to advance to spiritual maturity. So point number seven, one thing is obvious as a result of this, and that is that because of the judgment seat of Christ, there is no equality in heaven among believers. Some people get the idea that when we land in heaven, we're all going to be equal. We're all going to have uh, everything that we have is just going to be equal. It's going to be some sort of eternal cosmic um, communistic state. But that is not what the scripture teaches. We are not equal in everything. There is going to be an inequality in heaven. There are going to be distinctions among believers. Uh, since God is perfect and heaven is perfect, the inequality is going to be a perfect inequality. It's not going to be an inequality based on discrimination or unfairness or many of the other things that we associate with inequality today. Inequality will exist in heaven because there will be lost opportunity on earth under the fact that we all have equal privilege and equal opportunity to advance to spiritual maturity. 
Every single believer is given the same assets. Every single believer is given the same scripture. Every single believer is given the same Holy Spirit. But what you do with that is going to determine what you are in eternity. See, this is a principle of freedom that our founding fathers understood, that only in an environment of true freedom can you have real success. And real success is always, real freedom is always going to produce inequality. When the Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal, that's not talking about the fact that the results are equal. So we all have the same equal position before the law. It doesn't say that we all have even have the same equal opportunity. They weren't idealists. The founding fathers were not idealists divorced from reality. They knew that people were going to be born. Some were going to be born to impoverished households. Some would be born to wealthy households. Households. Some would be born in situations where they would have access to great education. Others would be born in places where there would not be great education. But only in the context of true freedom do people have the opportunity to succeed. You are only free to succeed to the degree you're free to fail. If you are not free to fail... And see, this is what's ha- what happens in socialistic states. This is what happens in communistic states. This is what has been characterizing much of liberal political philosophy in this country for the last hundred years is the idea that we want to make, reduce everybody to the lowest common denominator, and we don't want anybody to really suffer the consequences of their bad decisions and their failure. So if you go out and you uh, can't make any money or you make bad decisions in life and... and um, uh, you lose your lose your wealth or whatever. There's always going to be uh, some way through excessive taxation of those who have been successful that we will protect you from your failures. Well, what that does is it limits the incentive for other people to succeed. You either have freedom or you have equality. You cannot have equality and freedom at the same time. If you try to have equality, then that means you're going to limit the freedom of those to succeed because you're going to penalize their success because you're going to take away from them. And this whole idea of soaking the rich, taxing the rich, we're, we're fighting this problem in, uh, in not only in Connecticut but also in many other states right now. We're fighting a problem of deficit financing. So everybody comes up with a problem. Let's go soak the rich. But what they don't understand is just basic economics and the basic concept of freedom. And what, what we learn from economics is that the wealthy are the ones who put their money to work. And when they put their money to work, that creates jobs. And when you take that money away and put it into a non-productive enterprise such as government, doesn't help anybody in the long run. In the short run, you do have a measure of a solution, but it will ultimately fall apart. This is why we had such problems with the welfare state and had to redo welfare before, because you, you, the people that you're taxing only have limited resources. And you can't come along and constantly go after the wealthy people and take away the means of investment and the means of increasing uh, property and creating jobs. So you either have a choice between true freedom, which means that you're going to allow people to fail and destroy their lives from their own bad decisions. If you believe in the Bible, which emphasizes personal responsibility and accountability for bad decisions, then you have to be willing to let people fail and 
you know, I always say this just because I just love to, to, to needle people on this. I would rather have somebody make bad decisions and fail and end up muddy drunk in the streets than have them think that somehow they can make life work at any level apart from total dependence on the grace of God. And if you don't believe that, then you don't have a clue what grace is all about. And you don't have a clue what the spiritual life is all about. Because, because if you think that people can make success out of life apart from God, then you're in rebellion against God. People can't, we can't, we can have a pseudo success, but we can't have an eternal success and it'll destroy any, uh, any long-term spiritual consequences. Now there's always this decision, freedom versus equality, and we should always choose freedom. Freedom is the only environment within which real charity can take place. Because people always say, "Well, what about the people who have real problems and have and, and have have things that happen that are totally outside of their control?" And see, if you have real freedom, then you have the opportunity for people to exercise real compassion and real charity, and to give to all kinds of of uh, Institutions from hospitals to other institutions that provide. This is, this is what came out of Christianity. Just as a side note, if you're ever engaged with, in, in a discussion with a Muslim and they want to talk about Allah being a God of love, say, okay, how does that work itself out in Islamic society? Please point to the orphanages and the welfare institutions and the hospitals that Islam has produced. They can't. Because there's no such thing. Allah is not a God of love, and there's no such thing as genuine compassion. Hospitals, orphanages, welfare, all came out of a Judeo-Christian background. Judeo-Christianity teaches true freedom, not socialism, not communism. Judeo-Christianity emphasizes individual responsibility, which includes the responsibility on those whom God has materially prospered to be charitable and compassionate to those who have nothing. And it is not the responsibility of the government to be compassionate and charitable. It is a responsibility of individuals to be charitable and compassionate. Inequality will exist in heaven because people will do different things on earth. See, the, only in the Christian life do you have true equality. Every one of us has the same spiritual assets. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Scripture. There is true equality there. We have the same regenerate life. But what you do with it is going to make a difference, and that difference will play itself out in heaven. And there will be inequality because different believers will take advantage of these spiritual assets in different ways. So that means, that leads us to point number eight, that inequality in the eternal state is the result of the neglect of freedom in time or the irresponsible use of your freedom in time. See, that's why there is always inequality is because there is the irresponsible use of freedom. The solution is not to legislate equality in the political realm or to blame, or to blame freedom. 
The solution is always to teach and to emphasize responsibility, and that's the same thing in the spiritual life. We are to emphasize individual responsibility for the decisions we make and that the decisions we make in time will have an impact on eternity. Some of the distinctions are that that uh, are some of the equalities. Let's list the equalities first. We will all have a resurrection body. Every single believer will have a resurrection body like Jesus Christ's resurrection body. We will have a, it will be a glorified body. We will all live in heaven. There will be no more sin nature. There will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. The past will be completely wiped away when we get into eternity. We will not remember the events of time. But there will be differences. There will be different privileges. There will be different positions of responsibility. Some will uh, rule and reign with Christ. Others will simply be in the kingdom. There will be a different level of happiness or capacity for happiness. There will be different uh, responsibilities. There will be different rewards. Uh, all of these will be differences in heaven, but everyone will be happy. Some will be really happy, and some will just be very happy. And the happiness, remember, is subjective. So you, you will be happy, but you won't be aware of how much happier somebody else is because you will have no frame of reference for understanding someone else's subjective mindset. So you will not, nobody will be running around crying and whining that they're not as happy as somebody else, so God's not fair. And everyone will have a different capacity for eternal life. There will be access to different areas of heaven as well that will be determined by how well we do on earth. Point number nine, regardless of the historical circumstances in which you live, no matter whether you live in an impoverished situation in an under an oppressive regime or whether you live in an area of maximum freedom and prosperity, you have full spiritual freedom. Whether you're living as a believer in Saudi Arabia or whether you're living as a believer in the United States of America, spiritually speaking, you have the same assets, you have the same freedom, and you have the same opportunity to mature, to grow to spiritual maturity, and to have maximum rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So point number 10, freedom means inequality both in time and in eternity. People are free to succeed or free to fail spiritually. It all depends on how you want to exercise your volition. It comes right down to your decisions, your decisions, and your decisions. Your decisions determine what you will be in eternity. So finally, point number 11, believers who are constantly failing to execute the plan of God, believers who constantly fail to use problem-solving devices, people who are constantly distracted by the cosmic system and who get caught up in all kinds of false systems of thinking that aren't biblical, are those who are going to be the losers at the judgment seat of Christ they're the ones who are going to be deceived. That's why there's a warning against deception here, because they have put their focus on temporal pleasure. They have put their focus on temporal gains, and they have not lived their life today in light of eternity. 
Next time we're going to come back and we're going to look at more detail at the judgment seat of Christ, and then we will uh, press on to the whole doctrine of distractions with our head bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be impressed with the grace that you have given us, that you have given each of us the same opportunities, the same spiritual assets, the same doctrine, the same Holy Spirit, so that there is no excuse for failure other than our own unwillingness to make the right decisions, our own negative volition, our own failures. Father, we pray that you would use this doctrine we studied this morning to challenge us with the fact that we are living today in light of eternity. We also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that they would recognize that the starting point is not what we're talking about. The starting point is the cross. The starting point is everything that Jesus Christ did for us. That the judgment seat of Christ deals with rewards. We are rewarded for what we do. But salvation is a gift. It is a free gift. It is not based on what we do. It's not based on our decisions. It is based on only one decision, and that is to believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he is the one who fully paid the penalty, and that by faith alone in Christ alone we have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we've studied today, challenge us with them, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.